Section 25 of the Columbia Accident Investigation Board Final Report, Volume 1. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. The Columbia Accident Investigation Board Final Report, Volume 1, by the Columbia Accident Investigation Board. Chapter 6E Decision-Making at NASA, Part 5 Missed Opportunity 1 On Sunday, Rodney Rocha emailed a Johnson Space Center Engineering Directorate Manager to ask if a mission action request was in progress for Columbia's crew to visually inspect the left wing for damage. Rocha never received an answer. Flight, Day 5, Monday, January 20th, 2003. On Monday morning, the Martin Luther King Jr. holiday, the Debris Assessment Team held an informal meeting before its first formal meeting, which was scheduled for Tuesday afternoon. The team expanded to include NASA and Boeing transport analysts expert in the movement of debris in airflows, tile and RCC experts from Boeing and NASA, aerothermal and thermal engineers from NASA, United Space Alliance, and Boeing, and a safety representative from the NASA contractor Science Applications International Corporation. Engineers emerged from that informal meeting with a goal of obtaining images from ground-based assets. Uncertainty as to precisely where the debris had struck Columbia generated concerns about the possibility of a breach in the left main landing gear door seal. They conducted further analysis using angle and thickness variables and thermal data obtained by personnel at Boeing's Huntington Beach facility for STS-87 and STS-50, the two missions that had incurred thermal protection system damage. See Section 6.1. Debris Assessment Team co-chair Pam Madeira distributed an email summarizing the day's events and outlined the agenda for Tuesday's first formal Debris Assessment Team meeting. Included on the agenda was the desire to obtain on-orbit images of Columbia's left wing. According to an 11.39 a.m. entry in the Mission Evaluation Room Manager's log, the debris blob is estimated at 20 inches, plus or minus 10 inches in some direction, using the orbiter hatch as a basis. It appears to be similar size as that seen in STS-112. There will be more comparison work done and more info and details in tomorrow's report. This entry illustrates in NASA language an initial attempt by managers to classify this bipod ramp foam strike as close to being within the experience base, and therefore being almost an in-family event, not necessarily a safety concern. While the size and source of STS-107 debris was somewhat similar to what STS-112 had experienced, the impact sites the wing versus the solid rocket booster, differed, a distinction not examined by mission managers. Flight Day 6, Tuesday, January 21, 2003 
At 7 a.m., the debris assessment team briefed Don McCormick, the chief mission evaluation room manager, that the foam source and size was similar to what struck STS-112, and that an analysis of measured versus predicted tile damage from STS-87 was being scrutinized by Boeing. An hour later, McCormick related this information to the mission management team at its first post-holiday meeting. Although space shuttle program requirements state that the mission management team will convene daily during a mission, the STS-107 mission management team met only on January 17th, 21st, 24th, 27th, and 31st. The transcript below is the first record of an official discussion of the debris impact at a mission management team meeting. Before even referring to the debris strike, the mission management team focused on end-of-mission downweight. The orbiter was 150 pounds over the limit, a leaking water separator, a jammed Hasselblad camera, payload and experiment status, and a communications downlink problem. McCormick then stated that engineers planned to determine what could be done if Columbia had sustained damage. STS-107 Mission Management Team Chair Linda Hamm suggested the team learn what rationale had been used to fly after external tank foam losses on STS-87 and STS-112. Transcript Excerpts from January 21st Mission Management Team Meeting Hamm All right, I know you guys are looking at the debris. McCormick yeah, as everybody knows, we took a hit on the, well, somewhere on the left wing leading edge, and the photo TV guys have completed, I think, pretty much their work, although I'm sure they're reviewing their stuff, and they've given us an approximate size for the debris, and approximate area for where it came from, and approximately where it hit. So we are talking about doing some sort of parametric type of analysis, and also we're talking about what you can do in the event we have some damage there. Ham. That comment, I was thinking that the flight rationale at the FRR from tank and orbiter from STS-112 was, I'm not sure that the area is exactly the same where the foam came from, but the carrier properties and density of the foam wouldn't do any damage, so we ought to pull that along with the 87 data where we had some damage, pull this data from 112, or whatever flight it was, and make sure that, you know, I hope that we had good flight rationale then. McCormick. Yeah, and we'll look at that. You mentioned 87. You know we saw some fairly significant damage in the area between RCC panels 8 and 9, and the main landing gear door on the bottom on STS-87. We did some analysis prior to STS-89, so, uh, ham. And I'm really, I don't think there is much we can do, so it's not really a factor during the flight, because there is not much we can do about it. But what I'm really interested in is making sure our flight rationale to go was good, and maybe this is foam from a different area, and I'm not sure, and it may not be correlated. But you can try to see what we have. McCormick. Okay. After the meeting, the rationale for continuing to fly after the STS-112 foam loss was sent to Ham for review. 
She then exchanged emails with her boss, Space Shuttle Program Manager Ron Dittmore. Original Message From Dittmore, Ronald D., sent Wednesday, January 22, 2003, 9.14 a.m., to Ham, Linda J., subject, re-ET briefing, STS-112 foam loss. You remember the briefing. Jerry did it and had to go out and say that the hazard report had not changed and that the risk had not changed, but it is worth looking at again. Original message from Ham, Linda J., sent Tuesday, January 21, 2003, 11.14 a.m., to Dittmore, Ronald D., subject, forward, ET briefing, STS-112 foam loss. You probably can't open the attachment, but the ET rationale for the flight of STS-112 loss of foam was lousy. Rationale states, we haven't changed anything, we haven't experienced any safety of flight damage in 112 flights, risk of loss of bipod ramp TPS is same as previous flights, so ET is safe to fly with no added risk. Rationale was lousy then and still is. Original message from McCormick Donald L., sent January 21, 2003, 9.45 a.m., to Ham, Linda J., subject, forward, ET briefing, STS-112 foam loss. Importance, high. FYI, it kinda says that it will probably be all right. Ham's focus on examining the rationale for continuing to fly after the foam problems with STS-87 and STS-112, indicates that her attention had already shifted from the threat the foam posed to STS-107 to the downstream implications of the foam strike. Ham was due to serve, along with Wayne Hale, as the launch integration manager for the next mission, STS-114. If the shuttle program's rationale to fly with foam loss was found to be flawed, STS-114, due to be launched in about a month, would have to be delayed, per NASA rules that require serious problems to be resolved before the next flight. An STS-114 delay could, in turn, delay completion of the International Space Station's Node 2, which was a high-priority goal for NASA managers. See Section 6.2 for a detailed description of schedule pressures. During this same mission management team meeting, the Space Shuttle Integration Office's Lambert Austin reported that engineers were reviewing long-range tracking film and that the foam debris that appeared to hit the left-wing leading edge may have come from the bipod area of the external tank. Austin said that the engineering directorate would continue to run analyses and compare this foam loss to that of STS-112. Austin also said that after STS-107 landed, engineers were anxious to see the crew-filmed footage of external tank separation that might show the bipod ramp and therefore could be checked for missing foam. Missed Opportunity 2 Reviews of flight deck footage confirm that on flight day one, mission specialist David Brown filmed parts of the external tank separation with a Sony PD-100 camcorder, 
and payload commander Mike Anderson photographed it with a Nikon F5 camera with a 400mm lens. Brown later downlinked 35 seconds of this video to the ground as part of his Flight Day 1 mission summary, but the bipod ramp area had rotated out of view, so no evidence of missing foam was seen when this footage was reviewed during the mission. However, after the Intercenter Photo Working Group caught the debris strike on January 17th, ground personnel failed to ask Brown if he had additional footage of external tank separation. Based on how crews are trained to film external tank separation, the board concludes that Brown did in fact have more film than the 35 seconds he downlinked, such footage may have confirmed that foam was missing from the bipod ramp area, or could have identified other areas of missing foam. Austin's mention of the crew's filming of external tank separation should have prompted someone at the meeting to ask Brown if he had more external tank separation film, and if so, to downlink it immediately. Flight Director Steve Stitch discussed the debris strike with Phil Engelauf, a member of the Mission Operations Directorate, after Engelauf returned from the Mission Management Team meeting. As written in a timeline Stitch composed after the accident, the conversation included the following. Phil said the Space Shuttle Program community is not concerned, and that Orbiter Project is analyzing ascent debris, relayed that there had been no direction for Mission Operations Directorate to ask Department of Defense for any photography of possible damaged tiles. No direction for Department of Defense photography seems to refer to either a previous discussion of photography with mission managers or an expectation of future activity, since the interagency agreement on imaging support stated that the flight dynamics officer is responsible for initiating such a request, Engelhoff's comments demonstrate that an informal chain of command, in which the mission operations directorate figures prominently, was at work. About an hour later, Calvin Schomburg, a Johnson Space Center engineer with close connections to shuttle management, sent the following email to other Johnson engineering managers. Original message from Schomburg, Calvin, sent Tuesday, January 21, 2003, 9.26 a.m. to Shack, Paul E., Cyril Grush, Joyce M., Hamilton, David A. Subject, forward, STS-107, post-launch film review, day one. For your information, thermal protection system took a hit. Should not be a problem. Status by end of week. Shuttle program managers regarded Schomburg as an expert on the thermal protection system. His message downplays the possibility that foam damaged the thermal protection system. However, the board notes that Schomburg was not an expert on reinforced carbon-carbon, RCC, which initial debris analysis indicated the foam may have struck. Because neither Schomburg nor shuttle management rigorously differentiated between tiles and RCC panels, the bounds of Schomburg's expertise were never properly qualified or questioned. Seven minutes later, Paul Schack, manager of the Shuttle Engineering Office, Johnson Engineering Directorate, 
emailed to Rocha and other Johnson engineering managers information on how previous bipod ramp foam losses were handled. Original message from Shack Paul E., sent Tuesday, January 21, 2003, 9.33 a.m., to Rocha, Alan R., Seriali Grush, Joyce M., Kramer, Julie A., Miller, Glenn J., Rickman, Stephen L., Madden, Christopher B. Subject, Re-STS-107 Debris Analysis Team Plans. This reminded me that at the STS-113 Flight Readiness Review, the external tank project reported on foam loss from the bipod ramp during STS-112. The foam, estimated 4 by 5 by 12 inches, impacted the external tank attach ring and dented a solid rocket booster electronics box cover. Their charts stated, External tank thermal protection system foam loss over the life of the shuttle program has never been a safety of flight issue. They were severely wire brushed over this, and Brian O'Connor, Associate Administrator for Safety, asked for a hazard assessment for loss of foam. The suspected cause for foam loss is trapped air pockets, which expand due to altitude and aerothermal heating. Shack's message informed Rocha that during the STS-113 flight readiness review, foam loss was not considered to be a safety of flight issue. The wire brushing that the external tank project received for stating that foam loss has never been a safety of flight issue refers to the wording used to justify continuing to fly. Officials at the Flight Readiness Review insisted on classifying the foam loss as an accepted risk, rather than not a safety of flight problem, to indicate that although the shuttle would continue to fly, the threat posed by foam is not zero, but rather a known and acceptable risk. It is here that the decision to fly before resolving the foam problem at the STS-113 Flight Readiness Review influences decisions made during STS-107. Having at hand a previously accepted rationale, reached just one mission ago, that foam strikes are not a safety of flight issue, provides a strong incentive for mission managers and working engineers to use that same judgment for STS-107. If managers and engineers were to argue that foam strikes are a safety of flight issue, they would contradict an established consensus that was a product of the shuttle program's most rigorous review, a review in which many of them were active participants. An entry in a mission evaluation room console log included a 10.30 a.m. report that compared the STS-107 foam loss to previous foam losses and subsequent tile damage, which reinforced management acceptance about foam strikes by indicating that the foam strike appeared to be more of an in-family event. STS-107 debris measured at 22 inches long, plus or minus 10 inches. On STS-112, the debris spray pattern was a lot smaller than that of STS-107, on STS-50, debris that was determined to be the bipod ramp, which measured 26 inches by 10 inches, caused damage to the left wing, to one tile and 20% of the adjacent tile, 
Same event occurred on STS-7, no data available. Missed Opportunity 3 The foam strike to STS-107 was mentioned by a speaker at an unrelated meeting of NASA headquarters and National Imagery and Mapping Agency personnel, who then discussed a possible NASA request for Department of Defense imagery support. However, no action was taken. Imagery Request 2. Responding to concerns from his employees who were participating in the debris assessment team, United Space Alliance manager Bob White called Lambert Austin on Flight Day 6 to ask what it would take to get imagery of Columbia on orbit. They discussed the analytical debris damage work plan, as well as the belief of some integration team members that such imaging might be beneficial. Austin subsequently telephoned the Department of Defense Manned Spaceflight Support Office representative to ask about actions necessary to get imagery of Columbia on orbit. Austin emphasized that this was merely information gathering, not a request for action. This call indicates that Austin was unfamiliar with NASA National Imagery and Mapping Agency imagery request procedures. An email that Lt. Col. Timothy Lee sent to Don McCormick the following day shows that the Defense Department had begun to implement Austin's request. Original Message from Lee, Timothy F., Lt. Col. USAF Sent Wednesday, January 22, 2003, 9.01 a.m. To McCormick, Donald L., NASA. Subject, NASA Request for Department of Defense. Don, for your information, Lambert Austin called me yesterday requesting Department of Defense photo support for STS-107. Specifically, he is asking us if we have a ground or satellite asset that can take a high-resolution photo of the shuttle while on orbit to see if there is any foreign object debris damage on the wing. We are working on his request. Tim. At the same time, managers Ralph Rowe, Lambert Austin, and Linda Hamm referred to conversations with Calvin Schomburg, whom they referred to as a thermal protection system expert. They indicated that Schomburg had advised that any tile damage should be considered a turnaround maintenance concern and not a safety of flight issue, and that imagery of Columbia's left wing was not necessary. There was no discussion of potential reinforced carbon-carbon damage. First Debris Assessment Team Meeting on Flight Day 6, the Debris Assessment Team held its first formal meeting to finalize orbiter damage estimates and their potential consequences. Some participants joined the proceedings via conference call. Imagery Request 3 After two hours of discussing the crater results and the need to learn precisely where the debris had hit Columbia, the Debris Assessment Team assigned its NASA co-chair Rodney Rocha to pursue a request for imagery of the vehicle on orbit. Each team member supported the idea to seek imagery from an outside source. Rather than working the request up the usual mission chain of command, through the mission evaluation room, to the mission management team, to the flight dynamics officer, 
The debris assessment team agreed, largely due to a lack of participation by mission management team and mission evaluating room managers, that Rocha would pursue the request through his division, the engineering directorate at Johnson Space Center. Rocha sent the following email to Paul Schack shortly after the meeting adjourned. Original message from Rocha Allen R., sent Tuesday, January 21, 2003, 4.41 p.m., to Shack Paul E., Hamilton David A., Miller Glenn J., copied to Serial Grush Joyce M., Rogers Joseph E., Galbraith Gregory F., subject STS-107 Wing Debris Impact, request for outside photo imaging help. Paul and Dave, the meeting participants, Boeing, United Space Alliance, NASA ES-2 and ES-3, and Kennedy Space Center, all agreed we will always have big uncertainties in any transport trajectory analyses and applicability extrapolation of the old ArcJet test data until we get definitive, better, clearer photos of the wing and body underside. Without better images, it will be very difficult to even bound the problem and initialize thermal trajectory and structural analyses. Their answers may have a wide spread, ranging from acceptable to not acceptable to horrible, and no way to reduce the uncertainty. Thus, giving Mission Operations Directorate options for entry will be very difficult. Can we petition, beg, for outside agency assistance? We are asking for Frank Benz with Ralph Rowe or Ron Dittmore to ask for such. Some of the old-timers here remember we got such help in the early 1980s when we had missing tile concerns. Despite some naysayers, there are some options for the team to talk about. On-orbit thermal conditioning for the major structure, but is in contradiction with tire pressure temperature cold limits, limiting high cross-range deorbit entries, constraining right or left hard turns during the heading alignment circle, only if there is structural damage to the RCC panels to the extent it affects flight control. Rodney Rocha, Structural Engineering Division, ESSED, ES Division Chief Engineer, Space Shuttle DCE, Chair, Space Shuttle Loads and Dynamics Panel, Mail Code ES2. Routing this request through the engineering department led in part to its being viewed by shuttle program managers as a non-critical engineering desire rather than a critical operational need. Flight Day 7, Wednesday, January 22, 2003. Conversations and log entries on Flight Day 7 document how three requests for images Bob Page to Wayne Hale, Bob White to Lambert Austin, and Rodney Rocha to Paul Schack, were ultimately dismissed by the mission management team, and how the order to halt those requests was then interpreted by the debris assessment team as a direct and final denial of their request for imagery. End of Section 25 Recording by Maria Casper